The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week we look at a much-anticipated exhibition, Slavery, at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. How do you tell the stories of enslaved people in a museum whose collection mostly came from a wealthy elite? I talked to Velika Schmelders, one of four curators of the Slavery exhibition. Also in this episode, as next year's Venice Biennale is named after The Milk of Dreams, a children's story by the surrealist artist Leonora Carrington, I talk to Joanna Moorhead, a relative of Carrington's and her biographer, about the stories and what they tell us about the author. And this episode's work of the week is actually two works, Peter Paul Rubens's two landscape masterpieces, The Rainbow Landscape and A View of Hetstein in the Early Morning, which have been reunited for the first time in 200 years at the Wallace Collection in London. Before we begin, a reminder that you can read the art newspaper anywhere, anytime with our iPhone and iPad app. Visit the App Store, search the art newspaper, and then you can install the free app. If you're a subscriber, all the app content is available as part of your subscription. Now, many shows have been long awaited because of COVID-19 delays, but few have been so anticipated as the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam's Slavery Exhibition, which was scheduled to open last year. It's undoubtedly a landmark show for major European museums, as many are grappling with the subject of colonialism and slavery amid fierce political debate in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. The Rijksmuseum is the Netherlands' National Art and History Museum, of course, and the curators of the exhibition state in the catalogue that the country's colonial past has, quote, been insufficiently examined in the national history of the Netherlands, including at the Rijksmuseum. The exhibition explores slavery in the form of the true stories of 10 individuals, from the Netherlands of course, but also from Brazil, Suriname and the Caribbean, as well as from South Africa and Asia. It tells the stories of people who were enslaved and slave owners, of those who benefited from slavery and those who battled it. I spoke to Velika Schmelders, the head of history at the Rijksmuseum and one of the four curators of the exhibition. Felika, this is not an exhibition that has sprung up in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. How long has it been in the planning? Yes, well, planning actually started around 2017. In the beginning of that year, our main director, Taco Dibitz, announced uh, through the press that we would be working, the Rijksmuseum would be working on an exhibition on slavery. And that's the moment everything started to come together. So uh, we've brought together lots of people who have done research for many years. So I think the end result, what you see in our exhibition now, is the coming together of uh, a lot of years of research. Can you say something about the think tank that's been set up? Um, because I think that's crucial, isn't it, that you have, you've sought voices. There's four of you that are actually curating the exhibition, but, but you've actually gone out and sought broader voices that contribute to the research around the show? Oh, yes. Collaboration is uh, uh, crucial to this entire project uh, and having lots of different types of knowledge come together. So in 2017, the, the museum knew that we had to have a diverse team of curators to be able to do this. So within the team of curators, four of us, all of us have different professional backgrounds and different personal backgrounds. So we get to uh, talk things through. We get to put all of our uh, knowledge together. We get to question each other, which is why how you get better, how you grow. So uh, we knew we had to bring in a think tank as well because uh, the exhibition... Uh, talks about a large geographical area. So we talk about transatlantic slavery, but also slavery around the Indian Ocean and the traces of slavery as seen in the Netherlands. So in the think tank, you see people with those backgrounds, uh, academically, lots of different professional backgrounds, but um, also we brought in uh, activists who can... Uh, tell us more about the sensitivities around this subject. How do different groups of people look at this subject? What is um, important to them? 
so the think tank helped a lot in that. And the nice thing about coming together is that together we worked on new narratives. What does this mean if you put all of this together? And then next to that, we also had lots and lots of individual contacts with lots of um, researchers that helped us develop the uh, content for this exhibition. Yeah, that's fascinating because one of the reasons I mentioned George Floyd's murder in that first mm-hmm. question was was that we've seen museums around the world follow those events by stating that they were going to take a hard look at themselves, their collections, their staff, etc. This has obviously started earlier at the at the Rijksmuseum. So, as you say, this, the, the plans for this exhibition have been going on for some years. Was the impetus to look at the collection or a kind of broader approach? So did you know quite early on that it would have to be an exhibition or was the possibility that you could do it, could tell the stories you have through the collection? Well, museums, their collections and whether they are able to talk about slavery has been an issue for a long time. And museums for a long time have said that they were not able to. And the Rijksmuseum especially, our collection, collection is built on the collections, private collections of the rich and famous, the wealthy. So it has a strong link to um, 17th century paintings. Those are um, uh, the basis of our collection. And then we have beautiful furniture, for example. So it was kind of a double feeling. We knew that because of the temporary, uh, uh, it was very crucial that uh, it was very obvious that there's a link to slavery. And at the same time, what are you able to tell if you're only uh, using those objects with the link to uh, the elite? So uh, what we did was twofold. In the exhibition, we decided we wanted to focus on personal stories personal stories of people who were enslaved, people who were the enslavers, and the voices that spoke out against the system. So to be able to speak about the enslaved, we knew from the start we needed to bring in new objects, new material. And we also worked with lots of other uh, ways of diving into that, but I can talk more about that later. And next to the exhibition, we also worked on extra texts in our permanent exhibition that talk about the relationship between our collection and this slavery history. And that's a different approach. What we are able to convey there is very much about uh, the economic system. It's about the products that were obtained in the plantation uh, economy. It's about the institutions that were important back then. And you see people who were brought in from Africa to serve as servants in the Netherlands. So it is not everything that is important to be talking about we are able to do with our own collection. But at the same time, we discovered that you are able to uh, convey a lot more than we thought from the beginning. So that was a new discovery. And um, at the same time, we chose to bring in more um, uh, sources, more uh, knowledge as well. Um, can you can you say something about the sources? Because this is obviously a fascinating aspect, isn't it? That yes. If you're going to tell the story of enslaved people, primary sources are very hard to come by. They were denied access to pens and paper and the ability to record their existence. So can you say something about how you've approached that? Yes, that to us was really important. What we said from the beginning is we wanted to focus on 10 people. So how do you find 10 individuals, 10 people with names? And the enslaved people were mostly treated as objects. They were not able to document their lives. So we knew we had to go into archives to find names uh, connected to this history. But then how do you get to the emotions? How do you get to the thinking process? How do you get into the heads of the people who were enslaved? If you go through the archives, you get mostly to the people who resisted slavery, because those are the people who ended up in uh, juridical processes. So they are described from the viewpoint of the uh, colonizer. So to get into the emotions and what people were thinking, we needed to bring in oral history. And oral history has helped us to talk about the feelings of people who were enslaved, who were unable to protect their children, for example. So songs talk about that. Songs talk about how people felt when their loved ones were sold off. 
Songs talk about how people felt about the people who held them enslaved. So that's really important. And it really helped us as well to find ways to connect to how people looked at that entire system. Did they think that it was obvious? Did they think it was just the way things are? Or did they try and fight it? And what were their heroes in that? What did they know about what happened in other countries? So oral history really helped us with that. And what we did is we brought all of that together. So we did not put that those uh, different sources parallel to each other, but we bring them together and have them reflect on each other. So for example, uh, from oral history, we knew the name of uh, Masa Pali, a woman who fled enslavement um, and hid rice in her hair so that she would be able to feed herself and others. So she made the survival of people possible outside of the plantation economy. And then we had brought in a biological researcher who could tell us that this story of Masapali is really true because DNA research into that rice tells us that it is only found in West Africa and in Suriname and not on the plantations, but in uh, the communities of people who fled slavery. So that tells us that that oral history is really true. And then we went into our depots and we uh, looked at our collection and we saw that on our maps, you can see the places where people who fled enslavement grew rice. So it is a direct new way of connecting to our collection, of speaking about that, that history, which brings a lot of different uh, narratives, a lot of storylines together. Can you tell me about Romuald Hazoumé's work in the show? What role does it play? Because it's a, it's a large contemporary installation. We really wanted to focus on our um, own collection because we thought it would be um, important to um, bring across that we would not be looking away from what we ourselves have as a responsibility, but we are not able to talk about what life within a ship was like, what life for the people who were taken across the Atlantic in those ship's holds what that was like. So you needed to bring in modern um, contemporary art to be able to convey that. And Romuald Hazoumé has taken um, historical documents, a poem about a Dutch slave ship, and uh, translated that together with uh, the drawing of the Brooks, an English uh, slave ship, and translated that in modern material, in a modern way, uh, to speak about um, what life must have been like back then, and also to connect it to what's happening in West Africa nowadays. So he's taken jerry cans, something that uh, you would not think about at first hand if you uh, were to be talking about a ship. But he cut them and made uh, masks out of those jerry cans. In this way, you see faces in them. And he laid them on the floor in uh, the form of a ship's hold. So through those jerry cans, you get to connect to the experience of people in ship's holds. And the jerry cans are also a connection to uh, what's happening in West Africa nowadays because they are used to smuggle oil from one place to another. This is a very dangerous way of transporting oil. And an extra film next to that um, artwork talks about that, shows how people nowadays in Africa still live in circumstances that have everything to do with the traces of uh, colonial history. Let's talk about some of the historical objects. There's this particular box which is in the Rijksmuseum's collection, this gold and tortoiseshell box. You know, it's been in the collection. It's it's a it's a, an, a work which has been interpreted for a long time, but it speaks to the ways in which key links to slavery have not been historically acknowledged in the collection. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. The box was uh, used to uh, give a letter of consent to uh, stadtholder William the Fourth 
when he became a, a commander in the Dutch West India Company. And it's made of turtoise and, and gold, so it's really beautiful and pretty. Um, so for the longest time, uh, it was showed in the, in the uh, museum, in our permanent exhibition, as um, uh, a form of art, really. And it wasn't until 2013 when one of my colleagues, Gijs van der Ham, took a second and a, a good look at the box that he noticed that on the lid you uh, see three forms of trade. And one of them is the trade in human beings. So it is very much about what the West India Company was doing. A slave trade was one of them, but we have never used it to speak about that in the museum. So that has been slowly changing since 2013. And now in the exhibition, we use it as the very first object you come across in the exhibition. And we contrast that with the oral history. So we show the box as a form of um, um, extravagance. It's, it's uh, really costly and uh, exquisite and it's art. And at the same time, it does not speak about what this meant to those who were enslaved. And the oral history is our way of uh, um, bringing that into the museum as well. So it's the contrast that counts for us. And then, of course, there's this this collar, and it has been described in the past as a dog collar, but 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 you think it was used to effectively brand humans with, right? Yes, yes, that's uh, one of the uh, parts of the exhibition that we're really proud about. It's um, uh, we had to bring in new um, research to be able to talk about that. We've had colors in our collection other museums in the netherlands have had colors in our collections and they have always been described as dog colors but if you take a good look at the many paintings we have of the early 17th century you see that the colors that were worn by dogs were very different and the metal colors are mostly worn by human beings you see them around the necks of young african men so we had a good look at the collar, at the coat of arms on the collar. We found a young African man in their family at the moment who worked as a servant first. Later on, he worked in the military and we found paintings connected to those functions. So you see young boys, but even adult African men in uh, important functions in the military, all wearing a collar. So if you bring all of that together, you just can't um, ignore anymore that it must have been worn by a human being. So we, we don't have a, a conclusive conclusion yet. But if you bring everything together, I think it's really obvious. Indeed. Um, I also wanted to talk about the way that you've used works, which in some ways are the most famous works in all of the Rijksmuseum's collections, namely there's two Rembrandts. You've actually focused specifically on Erpion Coppet, who's lavishly dressed woman in, in this extraordinary, opulent portrait by Rembrandt. Can you tell us something about how now you're looking at that, at that work and how through this exhibition you can tell her story? Well, Rembrandt is very important to the museum and 17th century portraits and paintings are really important to us. So we wanted to um, know more about what other stories are we able to uh, convey through that art. So um, in choosing the 10 people, we thought it was really important to also focus on, on gender and, and different positionalities. So when we found out that Opie and Coppet, her two husbands, were both uh, related to the sugar industry, and we found out that one of her husbands lived in Brazil for a while, took an enslaved woman into his house for a while, fathered a child with her. He was brought to justice for doing that because it was a rape. So we knew that was be a perfect way of talking about the elite living in Amsterdam, uh, never having traveled there, but still having lots of links to that uh, economic system. And you can ask all kinds of questions. What did Opian know? 
how did she feel about it? And was there anything that she would want to do about it? Or did she just accept it? We don't know, but I think it's really important to uh, try and get into that side of the story as well. One of the things about the debate in this country in terms of looking at the history of slavery in connection with historic objects, it seems to me, is that the people that that are nervous or want to shut down that debate seem to think that by looking at the history, we're trying to shut down other ways to see them. That in some way, if you're looking at those portraits by Rembrandt now through the lens of slavery, you can't also appreciate its technical powers. But that's not what's going on here, is it? It's about broadening the context for these artworks. Absolutely. I think any human life has all sorts of uh, um, emotions connected. It. It, it. You go through things. Nobody's life is perfect. So if we were to look at paintings like they uh, only have an aesthetic meaning, it would not uh, do them justice. So as a museum, we really want to be um, connecting to people in all kinds of ways, through all kinds of emotions, through all aspects of their lives, and ask questions like, what would you do if you are in uh, her shoes? So we think it doesn't take anything away from Opian. Uh, on the contrary, it adds um, more questions, more humanity to her. And um, uh, I think it's important that uh, we don't just talk about it in an aesthetic way, but also about the ethical sides, which is important until nowadays, of course, because injustice is still all around. And what do we do when we encounter injustice? Is that in a, in a way? Is that one of the aims of the show, to point out the ongoing legacies of slavery and also to reach out to people living in the Netherlands and beyond who are existing within those legacies? Well, we set out to create historical exhibition, so it's very much about historical objects. But we knew that this is something that is discussed um, almost daily in the newspapers. People are really into uh, that part of history and who gets to own that part of history. And as a national museum, we wanted anybody connected to that history, be it through uh, their ancestors having been enslaved or their ancestors having been among the enslavers, to find themselves, to recognize themselves in that exhibition. So what we did is we created an audio tour, which takes you through those stories of those 10 people and all of the people that uh, are the guides of the audio tour have a personal connection either um, through their family history or um, in a broader sense. So they talk about what that history means to them as well. So that takes you very much into the here and now and the meaning of that past and how we've actually never really come to terms with it yet. We need to uh, do uh, a lot more about that. So the audio tour is an important tool in that, but we also have on the ground floor of the exhibition, we have an extra space where two artists work with uh, the visitors once they come out of the exhibition. And they've created 10 new pedestals, one for each of the historical figures in the historical exhibition. And um, in that way, all the visitors can cooperate and add what they and uh, those figures did to them, what their thoughts are. So uh, we actually create new heroes and new ways of looking into that history. That's fascinating. And of course, this must be just the tip of the iceberg, because as you say, it was only in 2013 that the golden tortoiseshell box that we were discussing was reinterpreted. So is this, in a sense, the beginning of a journey into the collection where you can trace these histories and reevaluate the entire collection, in a sense? Well, I think what we've seen is that once you open up uh, once you bring down the walls of the museum and invite people to uh, add their knowledge as well, that you can very quickly uh, bring together a lot of new uh, uh, interpretations, uh, additional information. Um, so yes, we want to be uh, working on that. 
Um, I already mentioned uh, that in our permanent display, we've added new text. So for a year, uh, so even after the slavery exhibition for the year to come, we will have that extra information and we will hope that will uh, bring people to uh, new ideas as well. That they will be writing us and telling us about uh, what else we could add. So yes, this is a new step and I think it's a new first step in um, building a lot more in the years to come. Velika, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Slavery is at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam until the 29th of August. You need to book ahead and Velika told me that tickets are fast selling out. For those of you who won't be able to visit the show, there are a range of resources on the Rijksmuseum's website and the catalogue is excellent. A big review of the show will appear in the July-August edition of the art newspaper out on the 1st of July and of course on our website and app. Coming up, we find out about Leonora Carrington's The Milk of Dreams, the children's book that's given the title to the next Venice Biennale of Art. And we talk about Rubens's landscapes. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. The novelist and philanthropist Mackenzie Scott, who's focusing on giving away her fortune following her separation from Jeff Bezos, the billionaire founder of Amazon, recently announced that she was donating $2.74 billion to 286 organisations. Of them, the art newspapers counted at least 60 that are involved in arts and culture. As Wallace Ludell writes, among the schools of arts organisations that receive funding were the Mosaic Network and Fund, a group of 19 foundations investing in New York City-based arts and culture groups led by people of colour, which was awarded $5 million, the Museum of Chinese Art in America, also in New York and also given $5 million, and the National Museum of Mexican Art in Chicago, which received $8 million. One of the most historically significant digital artefacts, Tim Berners-Lee's source code for the World Wide Web application, will be sold as a non-fungible token, or NFT, later this month, Kabir Jalla writes. Offered by Sotheby's in a standalone single-lot online auction from the 23rd to the 30th of June, the NFT includes timestamped digital files of the code, written by Berners-Lee between 1990 and 1991. A digital poster of the full code, visualised in Python script and signed by Berners-Lee, is also included in the NFT. And finally, the jury for the UK's largest contemporary art prize, Artist Mundi, has awarded the ninth edition of the prize to all six shortlisted artists. It follows the Turner Prize jury's decision to do the same in 2019. Artist Mundi stated that the decision was, quote, in recognition of this time of exceptional social and economic upheaval and to acknowledge the outstanding quality of the artist's individual practices. The six artists, Firule Baez of the Dominican Republic, Deneo Seche-Bopape of South Africa, Mero Koizumi of Japan, Beatrice Santiago Munoz of Puerto Rico, Prabhakar Pachpute of India and Carrie Mae Weems of the US will each receive £10,000. You can read all these stories and more at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This month, Christie's London is honoured to present the Lorraine Scott Collection, an online sale of the renowned fashion designer's most important pieces. The 55-lot sale highlights the vision of Lorraine Scott's collection and the precise construction of her bespoke dresses and illustrates how her talent led her to work with some of the most celebrated faces in fashion, film and music. Peppered with red carpet dresses and ensemble worn by the likes of Nicole Kidman, Penelope Cruz, Madonna and Amy Adams, the top lots are two incredibly detailed stage jackets that Scott custom designed for her long-term partner, Mick Jagger. Open for bidding until the 1st of July, proceeds from the sale will go towards funding the Lorraine Scott Fashion Scholarship at Central St Martins, the University of Arts London. Find out more on christies.com. Welcome back. Now, last week we told you that Cecilia Alemani's Venice Biennale for Art in 2022 will bear the title The Milk of Dreams. She took the title from the collection of children's stories of the same name by the surrealist artist Leonora Carrington. Joanna Moorhead is a relative of Carrington's and her biographer, and I spoke to her about Carrington, her stories, and what that might mean for the next Venice Biennale. Joanna, tell us about Leonora Carrington's story The Milk of Dreams. 
The Milk of Dreams is a collection of children's stories and these stories were the stories that Leonora would tell her sons, her little boys, when they were children. And they remember, they have recollections of a room where she'd painted and drawn some of her fantastical creatures on the walls. Um, that's, I think, a sort of a standalone kind of memory. Um, but what they... Uh, remember is that night after night or day after day she would tell them stories um, and many years later in a rather odd set of circumstances Leonora's eldest son Gabriel was given a notebook uh, in which Leonora had written down some of these stories and illustrated them and that was the basis of what became published in 2013 as uh, the milk of dreams and it was Gabriel Leonora's eldest son, who gave it the title The Milk of Dreams. And he did that uh, feeling that what we get from our mothers is milk, is food, and Leonora was a mother who could feed her children with imagination as well as the milk of, of life. She was feeding them with the milk of imagination as well. That's my understanding from him anyway. That's so interesting. What sort of stories are they? Because because I think that's one of the things that, that people will want to grapple with. You know, we've got a Venice Biennale named after this book. What kind of stories does it contain? They're extraordinary, fantastical, bizarre, I guess, stories. They seem to be rooted in the life Leonora was living at the time, which was in Mexico. So we're talking about the 1950s. Her children were both born at the end of the 1940s. So by then she's moved from Britain. She's living in Mexico City. One of them, for example, one of the stories is about a, is a rather terrifying story. A lot of them are rather terrifying stories about a taco seller who gives the children... Uh, any children who happen to come near her taco stall, she gives them rotten meat, and then it's what happens. It talk, talk, you know, it's the story of what happens next. And that, um, is it right? The rotting meat can speak. It's yes. Children claim that they've eaten the rotten meat, and then and then it turns out that the rotten meat is so rotten that it can speak to the taco seller. The meat itself, yes, absolutely. And then there are a lot of stories. I don't know if you noticed this when you were reading as well, but a lot of stories in which children lose their heads, and then their heads are often put back on their bodies but not always not ever I think in the same way that they had been before and I guess what this all speaks to is her interest in in transformation and her interest in boundaries and her interest in what's possible what we think we can do what we might be able to do she's pushing at the boundaries all the time whichever work you look at I think you will find that what she's doing is pushing at the boundaries. So I guess in a way what you could say with this is she's pushing at the boundaries in a sense of children's stories. I don't know if you'd agree, you've read them as yeah, well. They're, they're definitely on the edge. But because they have, the, I mean, for instance, I mean, of course, children love scatological humour, but some of it's quite dark scatological humour. There's a figure that urinates over people in the street, for instance. Um, and I'm wondering actually how much of that we can read within a kind of surrealist rubric. How, to what extent can you apply surrealist ideas to these stories and or to what extent are they just children's imaginative stories in the sense that a grim story would be dark and fantastical what uh, gabriel who i've spoken to about this book said to me was that he believes that his mother was somebody who thought differently about children from many people so she didn't think that children should be shielded from bad stuff because she thought bad stuff's going to happen in life to all of us and we need to know that bad stuff might happen as well as as good stuff. And I guess these stories are, uh, I don't think many children would probably believe that this could actually happen, but it's painting a picture of a world in which which extraordinary and strange things do happen. No part of Leonora tried to be a surrealist. It was just what she was. So she was never operating as a surrealist. She was operating as Leonora Carrington. And one of the interesting things to me is that, you know, other members of her family who I knew... (laughs) were a bit more like the surrealists than you might than you might imagine, and they were not surrealist artists. Um, and and of course, you know, when we look at the history of surrealism, there are people who are who have surrealist ways of uh, of doing things. Who the surrealist movement will claim from all kinds of different periods of history and and spaces and times. That's interesting, and I, and I suppose you know another thing. Of course, you talked about the fact that it was written in Mexico City, and and of course. Breton famously described Mexico as the most surrealist country. And I wondered to what extent Mexico was an influence, do you think? Yeah, well, Mexico is a huge influence on Leonora. And in a way, the, the way I quite often think of it is kind of almost overload for Leonora because she'd had this extraordinary set of adventures in Europe as a young woman 
involving the war and a love affair with Max Ernst and all sorts of things going wrong. Her lover, Max, being taken away and then she ends up in a in an asylum and terrible things happen to her there and then she's again separates herself from her family. So all these extraordinary things happen to her. And then she takes a boat across the Atlantic and by a series of yet more adventures finds herself in Mexico. And as you rightly say, when André Breton visited Mexico quite a few years earlier, um, he had said that he felt it was the most surreal nation in the world because a lot of very strange things happened to him, actually, which are in themselves fascinating. And I think that certainly my many travels in Mexico, uh, Mexico is a wild and wonderful and surreal country. It just is. It's not the only country that's like that, I'm sure, but it is. It's very colourful. It's very uh, musical. It's very noisy. It's like life is lived on the edge and out there. And I think that uh, for Leonora, the way I sometimes describe it is she arrived laden with these, if you like, suitcases packed with experiences. And what she was then going to do, so she arrives in Mexico in her mid-20s, let's say, and she's going to spend the rest of her life, and she didn't die until her mid-90s, kind of unpacking these these suitcases and they're the raw material for much of her art but not all of her art of course because then there's the huge experiences of Mexico where of course there are fascinating things happening there in the art world when she arrives there Frida Kahlo's still alive and she gets to know Frida a bit Diego Rivera's there the other muralists and so on and many many other artists so it's almost like There's so much happening on every front for Leonora, but definitely uh, Mexico seeps into her work because she was a curious woman who was interested in what was going on around her. Um, Tell us about the illustrations in the book, because they're they're wonderful. They're very sketchy, aren't they? And this lovely sort of fluid sketchiness. There's a character called Signor Mustache Mustache, for instance, you know, and there's a wonderful freedom about the way she's translating her stories into images. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, as you say, there is always that um, that sort of fluidity and and freedom, I think, in Leonora's, in her painting and her visual art. And I think that these obviously are a bit different because she's sketching or drawing quite quickly. My understanding from Gabriel is that she's she was sketching the creatures and the characters as she told the story. So this was part of the deal for these kids that they get a bedtime story and and the drawings, you know, and, and I can imagine that that's how she would have operated. And that, again, is something that's very true to who Leonora was. You know, it's she always lived in a very real way. This would be very real stuff for her. Um, tell us about that relationship with family because it is, it's such an extraordinary story and so her relationship with her own childhood and then translating her experiences into being a mother and everything else, it seems to me that that would have been really important to her because it is an extraordinary story, hers. Yes, I mean, she, she grew up in Lancashire in an interesting family, a family that had lots of money, a nouveau riche family and her mother, who was my great aunt, I think had big ambitions for her because she was the only daughter and on her marriage rode a lot for the family. Leonora didn't want that kind of life. Um, She felt stifled and she felt held back and she felt that she would never be able to flourish as the artist she always knew she was in that family. I mean, this is me saying this and not Leonora, but when you give up, which is what Leonora went on to do, she gave up her connection with her family effectively. I mean, she left... In 1937, first to go to Paris to join the Surrealists and then through this trail of adventures ended up in the mid-1940s in Mexico where she pretty much was rooted for the rest of her life. So she pretty much cut herself off from her birth family. And um, there were close relationships that she left there, particularly, I think, with her mother. Her relationships with her brothers were mixed, you know, some easier than others. Um, But it's a lot to give up to cut yourself off from your family. And I... I think that was hard, very hard for her all her life. So she didn't marry the man she went to Mexico with. He was a poet called Renato Leduc. They separated, but then Leonora met a Hungarian photographer called Chiki Weiss. And with him, she had her two sons. She then had another family in Mexico, the family that she was the mother of. And I think they they were hugely important to her. I mean, she would have continued a relationship with her mother, but her mother died in the 1970s. So Mexico was a lot further away in the 1940s than it is now. You know, you can't just hop on a plane and be there in nine hours then. 
but you've spoken to Gabriel, her son, about the Milk of Dreams, his title, being used as the title for the Venice Biennale. What, what did he make of it? I think he feels very excited and thrilled that um, that the Biennale um, organisers um, are using the, the title. I mean, I don't want to put words into his mouth, but I but I think that he feels, and and Leonora's uh, younger son Pablo would also feel, and anybody who's championing Leonora's work would feel that she didn't get enough recognition in her own lifetime and as the gorilla girls famously said you know a lot happens after you're dead if you're a female artist um so leonora lived 94 years uh, and she's been dead for 10 but her legacy is still in its infancy and i think something like the venice biennale with its reach um and people googling you know who read um the curator talking about the milk of dreams the title what it means and then people google leonora carrington it's interesting because someone on on twitter who like me has been writing about her for some time was saying when she started writing about her and this is true of me as well 15 years ago or so whenever it was that i wrote my first piece or if i talked to people about um leonora carrington they would confuse her with dora carrington now that hardly ever happens anymore so that's got to be a good thing <laughs> right absolutely um, and i think the biennale will bring her to more attention hope right. so yeah indeed what has cecilia alemani said about how the title relates to the themes of the show what i've read that she has said is that it's more the idea that relates to the show is my understanding and the idea that i think she's interested in relating to the show is the thing that we would talking about uh, earlier which is this idea that um, the world of possibilities is a lot bigger than we often think it is and I think that's something that Leonora's work is all about and in in a way this is a, a very compact example of that philosophy of Leonora's if you look at any painting by her or any sculpture I think you see that 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 they're all about possibilities uh, that we may not have thought of as being possible. And Leonora just had this kind of mind that meant that she could see possibilities where many people can't see possibilities. And I think that that's what the curator of the Biennale is interested in, because that's very much what art should be doing, isn't it? Absolutely. Lastly, I wanted to ask you about your own personal experience of meeting Leonora, because it was it, you almost didn't, right? I mean, you, you met her five years before she died. but and, and even that happened almost by chance, is that right? Well, what's by chance in, in the world of surrealism? <laughs> Very surrealist concept, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'd always known when I was even quite a young girl that there was somebody in my family who, who that some scandal had happened and she disappeared. And I was always interested in her. But um, when you leave your family, you leave a lot of wounds on that side as well. I think it, it was very painful um, still in our family what, that Leonora had gone so it was very difficult for me to find out the story and it was a chance meeting um, in 2006 I think it was um, with a Mexican art historian that kind of introduced me to who Leonora was now and set me on the path to going to Mexico to meet her and I'd thought that I would just write one piece for for the Guardian the newspaper I mostly write for but when I met her and when I'd spent a few days with her I realized it was about a lot more than that and she threw open her arms to you effectively didn't she she it wasn't like you know you didn't encounter somebody who was suspicious of you even though you were from the family that she'd left behind she welcomed me and um you know I mean I think she wanted to know a bit about me she was very interested in getting a subscription to the to the guardian international weekly i remember so we spent a lot of time the first couple of days organizing that there were a lot of things she didn't know about our family like you know who a particular aunt had married or you know what had what had happened to this person or that person so i kind of felt that it wasn't the very end of her life and i was so lucky i mean she was 89 when i when i got to know her and as people's lives do her life closed in the closer she got to the very end of her life. Um, but when I first knew her, for example, she, you know, we'd go, we'd often go out for a meal or we'd go walking around the streets around where she lived in, in uh, Mexico City. So she was, um, she was quite mobile. She got a dog, actually, and, and we used to take the puppy for walks. So we had quite a lot of time together. I'd never want to overplay anything about my relationship with Leonora I feel really strongly about that but the thing I always say is my life gained enormously from knowing Leonora enormously and it's nothing to do with with anything that's public you know 
my just my life and my perception of what living is about was completely changed by knowing Leonora and people who know me well understand that but you know would know what I mean if I changed her life in just a little way by arriving there and saying there's somebody from that family who cared enough to come then I can't tell you how happy that makes me Joanna, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Very nice to be here. Thank you. The Milk of Dreams by Leonora Carrington is published by New York Review Children's Collection and priced $17.95 in the US. You can read Joanna Moorhead's article on The Milk of Dreams on our website and app. And Joanna's book, The Surreal Life of Leonora Carrington, is published by Virago, priced £10.99 in the UK in paperback. And the Kindle version is currently available for £3.99. And finally, it's time for Work of the Week. The Wallace Collection in London has just reunited two of Peter Paul Rubens's landscapes for the first time in two centuries. It's part of a swap with the National Gallery in London, which saw Titian's Perseus and Andromeda heading to the exhibition of the Venetian artist Poesia at the National Gallery last year. The National has sent their painting, A View of Hetstein in the Early Morning, to join the Rainbow Landscape at the Wallace. And I spoke to the Wallace's director, Xavier Bray, about this Rubens reunion. Xavier, what stage of life was Rubens at when he painted these pendant pictures? He had just brokered a a peace treaty between Spain and England. He he had been a a very illustrious ambassador as well as being a a painter who travelled all around uh, Europe from Spain, uh, via France, Paris, London. So highly successful, but I think he needed the rest. He knew it. His big aim was to return to Antwerp and buy a country house, which he did. Um, at Hetstein, uh, just in between uh, Antwerp and Brussels. And by 1635, he'd settled there uh, with his young wife, uh, who was you know, 16 years old, uh, with whom he had uh, five children. And you can tell he was extraordinarily happy. The studio was working away in Antwerp. He would send letters back to find out how things were going, but always uh, with a bit of time to ask, you know, send over a bit of good wine and and a few pears. Um, So the correspondence is all there. But um, he, a bit like Gainsborough later on in the 18th century, having painted portraits and mythologies and religious paintings, what he really wanted to do was paint landscapes. And uh, the landscape around Hetstein was the perfect subject matter for him. And these two landscapes, they differ substantially in one key factor, which is the rainbow. Is, is, is this just a sort of artist in love with landscape? Or is that rainbow something more than just a a sort of meteorological phenomenon? That's a good question. The title of the Wallace painting is The Rainbow Landscape because we all um, sort of focus on the the rainbow. But the more you look at the picture, the more you realise that, yes, it has just... There's been a massive downpour. Everything's moist. And as the big, heavy cloud is going past, a rainbow appears. And there is definitely a sense of wanting to capture that meteorological uh, moment. Um, but at the same time, it's it's a sort of daily scene of people going back to the harvesting of, of, of the wheat. Uh, the ducks come out from their sort of uh, provisional shelter and cross the, the ford again, and life resumes. So there's a, there's a mix of meteorology, there's the, uh, the sense of, of, of time passing and and peasants of work on the land but there's a real celebration of 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 an estate and i think this is the key that we've we've sort of slowly realizing is that as he bought the estate of hetstein he became the lord of the manor as such and and had the land a, a specific uh, acreage which uh, he would uh, oversee so i think there's a, a sense of uh, also wanting to document the land that he owned and looked after and made sure that would flourish through his good oversight and is it is it still idealised or is there a sense of reality in it? Well, that's been the continuous question that art historians have asked themselves. Is this a, 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 an idealised landscape? Uh, you know, that, that, that part of the, of, of the Brabant is 
pretty damn flat. <laughs> and actually, when you look, you sort of see little hillocks and you wonder, God, what's going on there? And um, very recently, we had this wonderful international symposium online at the Waris. And uh, um, an uh, art historian, historian from, from Antwerp had uh, recently looked at uh, maps of, of the 17th century and was able to locate pretty much the villages, the churches, the windmills very precisely. So there is topographical accuracy there with a touch of artistic license. I mean, he's fascinated by aerial perspective. That's what he wants to get. He's seen Titian at the Royal Palace in Madrid. He, he knows that by making it bluish, you can have that sense of distance. But you do need a bit of height in order to keep that, the eye uh, looking out into the distance. So he's, he's slightly elevated the, the landscape in order to do that. What was the status of landscape painting at this time? Because we hear about the great genres, you know, in, in Rubens' time, were those genres established? To what extent was, was landscape a tradition even at that stage? Well, landscape um, as, a, as a genre in itself was, was sort of beginning, really. I mean, you had Pieter Bruegel the Elder and uh, early on in the uh, sort of mid-16th century with, with those wonderful landscapes, but there was a, always a sort of sense of, of a thematic and it could be the seasons or, uh, or different moments of the day. Um, so there was always a sort of um, significance, an attachment to, to, the, to the landscape here. Uh, we do have the sense of wanting to capture a landscape for the sake of capturing the landscape. And we do have these wonderful drawings and, and sketches by, by rumours that, that suggest that he, he must have gone out into the open air to, to paint what was before him. So you could say that he, these are rel- relatively early depictions of, of, of the great landscapes in, as a genre that would, of course, um, develop much more in the 18th and 19th century. And indeed, um, Constable was absolutely obsessed by these two pictures, the rainbow landscape and the early morning view at Hetstein that's now at the National Gallery. Where would Constable have seen them? Because that's the other interesting aspect. Of course, the images themselves are extraordinary, the paintings themselves. But of course, there's a, there's a sort of museological and and um, and the the provenance question. So, where would Constable have seen these two pictures? Well, the two pictures arrive in England in 1803. They they'd been travelling from uh, Antwerp, Flanders, via Spain, Madrid, and then end up in Genoa in the Palazzo Balbi where they were acquired by a dealer. And uh, the early morning at Hatstein was sold to uh, Mrs Beaumont, who gave it to her husband, George Beaumont, who would eventually give his pictures to the British nation and uh, hence uh, the, the early founding of the National Gallery. So that picture, there is no doubt that uh, Council would have known extremely well um, from his visits to the National Gallery. Um, the the rainbow landscape went through different collections, but would have been seen at the British Institution uh, at some exhibitions, or Constable would have seen it in, in the private collections before it came up uh, on the market in 1856 at Christie's, when the famous bidding war between the National Gallery director, Charles Eastlake, and the fourth Marquis of Hartford, who was ready to spend big bucks to get it. And indeed, he spent £4,550, which at that time, you know, is enough to buy yourself a good small village with a pub in it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Tell us about how much they were important pictures to Rubens, because of course... He was a man who was an extraordinary marketeer in a way for his work. He was an amazing self-promoter. He he was a a brilliant creator of pictures which flattered his his patrons. But here are pictures that he had he kept for himself. Is that right? Yes, I mean that's what we presume. They were recorded between Hetstein and and his home in Antwerp. But it's highly likely that they were done for his own satisfaction and enjoyment. Uh, there's been a lot of debate how he displayed them, whether he hung them on other side of a, of a fireplace, on top of a fireplace, uh, opposite each other in a sort of studio space or in a grand room. We, we don't know, unfortunately, and that's a debate that will carry on until we found, find a, a proper inventory that lists exactly where things were. But there is no doubt that he did them for private enjoyment and to impress um, visitors to either Hetstein, where they might have hung, so he would have, you would have entered the, the manor house and then seen the landscapes and then maybe peered through the windows and 
seen the sort of evocation of those landscapes in in paint or it's been proposed that he took them back to his Antwerp, which is now the sort of house museum, uh, but to his sort of studio and where he would have enjoyed that stain from the city. So it would, he would have brought the, the countryside back home in the city uh, atmosphere. We still don't know, but what's f- for sure is that they were painted for him and they were not uh, a commission from anybody else. Tell me about that moment when the picture from the National arrived in the Wallace. You must have been absolutely desperate to get it out of its crate. Yes, we were. It was they're, they're both very heavy pictures because they they comprise of about twenty different bits of panel, uh, which is extraordinary, really. And uh, in the exhibition, we have a film that explains how these were made and how he, you know, started with a, a smaller composition and then added uh, more panels and then added yet even more panels to make these large compositions. So they're they're, they're impressive in terms of size. Um, and when they came out of the crate, the emotion is definitely there, but it's the, the idea that as Rubens, who conceived them as a pendant pair, the fact they hadn't been seen for 200 years, straight away, uh, perhaps myself as an as a art historian, you just want to quickly see where, where the visual connections, how, how do they talk to each other visually, where are the echoes, where are the compositionals parallels. And it is a visual feast game whatever you want, and that's what's so impressive. We've decided to hang them opposite each other. And what you get is that you stand in the middle and you can just basically look one side to the other and just see how he uses diagonals, triangular compositions to make them balance each other and yet be so different to each other. Each one of them has a different mood, a different emphasis. What you could say, one is calm, one is active, one is contemplative, one is uh, about doing things. Uh, there are so many uh, ways of uh, penetrating these pictures. And then one thing I, I've managed to do is just listen to music. For example, Beethoven. You just listen to music and just let those pictures move you in a very quiet and slow way. And, and we've all been talking about slow looking. And for the first time, this really is slow looking because the, the longer you spend in front of these pictures, the more you get out of them. And even us who work at the Wallace have found new details, new trees, uh, little horses galloping in the distance. And one art historian um, managed, thanks to this map that he discovered, he's managed to locate Hatstain, a country house. You see it right at the bottom where the pot of gold would be at the at, at the one end of the, of the rainbow. And this is new to us. We didn't realise it was there. So he's actually depicting Hatstain in the distance at the bottom of the rainbow landscape. And that's been quite wonderful, really. And obviously this exchange of pictures with the National couldn't have happened in the past. So Wallace is embarking on a new era. Tell us something about that, because it is a really significant moment. I was present at the National to see the poesie by Titian, which which had not left the Wallace. And now here you have this great Rubens from the National. As As a director and a curator, it must be thrilling to know that you can now explore the Wallace collection in new ways. Definitely. I mean, this has been a, a dream come true. Having worked at the National Gallery and knowing that the rainbow landscape down the road was the the pendant, it, it was always an obvious thing to do one day to to reunite the two together, and to now being at the Wallace Collection and having been very fortunate to have the full support from DCMS, the Charities Commission, and the trustees to interpret the will in a more sort of open manner uh, this is lady wallace's will which says you know the collection shall remain together and unmixed with other objects but she doesn't actually say thou shall not lend so it was another way of, of, of working with with the will and um, as we are a national museum she gave the collection to the nation and so she entrusted us with it and um, the uh, you know it is our public duty to to teach to to inspire and it, it just felt like a crime not to have the two, uh, an art historical crime, sorry, <laughs> not to have these two pictures uh, be seen together as they were conceived. And so with uh, Gabriel Finaldi, we, we were able to, to talk about what great possibilities there could be. And, and one of them was, as you said, the Titian poesy, a, a great, another great dream come true to see those great mythologies uh, together again for the first time for 400 years and to do a similar thing for the Wallace with the 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 Rubens so it's two national museums sharing their their collections and making art history vibrant and uh, and alive 
um, and doing things that you'd expect to have been done ages ago, but for some reason hadn't been done. So it's very exciting to, to be making history in a way, but also to quite simply allow these, these paintings to, to talk to each other as they would have been made to do so originally. And that's, that's part of our job, really, as curators and directors, to make these things possible. Xavier, thank you so much for telling us about it. Pleasure. Rubens Reuniting the Great Landscapes is at the Wallace Collection in London until the 15th of August. And that's all for this episode. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast and our sister podcast, A Brush With, in which I interview artists about their influences and cultural experiences if you haven't already done so. And please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. We're on Twitter at Town Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julie Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Henrietta Bentle and Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Radhika, Joanna and Xavier, and thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.